You may be seated. If you are joining with us uh, today, maybe for the first time, um, I'm Paul Joyner, one of the pastors here, and we are working our way through the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 1, and if you're new to Christianity, maybe aren't familiar with the Bible, we've printed the text for you on page 8 of um, your worship guide, and if you're visiting with us or maybe watching from home and you don't have a Bible, we would love to get you um, a Bible. So please uh, just reach out to us, message us, grab one of us. Um, We would love for you to have God's Word um, in your hands and in your home and then in your heart. Revelation uh, chapter 1, starting with verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner... In the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." This is the word of the Lord Jesus. Would you join with me and ask his blessing on his word preached? You stand in the midst of your church. You've died. You've opened the path into your heavenly presence. You've ripped the veil by the shedding of your blood. And now we stand boldly and with confidence in the presence of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And we pray, come, and with all your power, speak to us today. 
We can't change ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We are utterly powerless. But when you speak, things change. And so change us, we pray in your name, our Savior. Amen. Well, I was convicted as we sung these words that all of our desires are granted and and what he ordains. That he knows us and what he brings about in this world um, are and is what is ultimately good and therefore what is good for us. And so then the question becomes, what are you afraid of? Is it the virus that's raging in our country or the rise of the left or the rise of the right or your cancer or your job? What threat is keeping you up at night? What threat that he who has granted our desires and what he ordained for us is keeping you up at night? You see, the irony of the upside down kingdom is that Jesus's people always thrive when we face weakness because Jesus is in the midst of his people. When we gather together for worship, especially in a unique way, he is here. He is present in his reign, and his power is perfected in weakness. So what I want us to see this morning is, is just this, simply how Jesus, as prophet, priest, and king, gathers with his people And strengthens a weak people. And the weaker, the better. Persecution is the norm for the church. The church throughout history has always found itself on the side of those who are in power at best, under their thumb at worst. In fact, Jesus promised that persecution would increase in the world and that the love of many as a result would grow cold. He tells a parable that, that oftentimes the word is sown out into the world and sometimes it falls on good soil, but sometimes it's choked out. Sometimes the devil snatches it away and in both of those situations, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's choked out by persecution, by pressure. And do you see how in verse 9, John, as he's introducing himself to us introduces himself as our brother and partner in the tribulation. He's normalizing this experience. He's saying what I am experiencing now is what is normal in the church. I'm your brother and your partner in these things. And there are really three things that that John describes as being a partner in and And the word that's translated here as partner means partaker of. You're co-partaker of. We are partnering in this together because we're all partaking of the same thing. We are partaking of the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance. Now, our translation reads that as three separate things. But in the original language, the the is only before the first one. And that's just a way of collecting all of these things together. All of these things are ours in Christ. That's what he says. The kingdom, 
The tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance are all of us together. There's all of these at once. And you see what he's saying is you can't take Jesus and just cherry pick out these three things. You can't, it's not a menu that you have. If you have Jesus, you have all of these things at once. You are a partaker of Christ and therefore the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance. And so John, in the word that he translates as tribulation, I want you to picture that of conforming through intense pressure. Think of a manufacturing machine stamping out metal parts. A sheet of metal, rigid and strong, is laid out, and then a machine through intense pressure conforms what is immovable into something that's pliable by an putting incredible pressure. And these seven churches that he's writing to in Western Asia Minor were experiencing just that, a growing systemic persecution from the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was isolating and attacking them because they were followers of Jesus. John himself is on the island of Patmos, a rocky, craggy island off the coast of modern Day Turkey, and, and what he says, he's on there because or on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so he's saying, I'm a partner in this. You see, what I'm going through is what you will or are going through because this is what it means to belong to Jesus Christ. The Christian life is not a life of absence of pressure to conform, but constancy of pressure to conform. It is a life of constant tribulation. And so it shouldn't surprise you if you're a follower of Jesus when we face pressure. And oftentimes this is what it's subtle, right? It's just this sort of subtle, increasing pressure. And I've said before, it's not so much to abandon the gospel, it's to diminish it or add something to it or make something equal with it. You know, the Christians shouldn't be surprised by this because this is what it means to belong to Jesus. All that is Jesus is ours. We're one with him. His death becomes our death and the source of the forgiveness of sins. His resurrection becomes our resurrection and the source of new life. And because he experienced persecution in the world, we should too. We're partners in this. Partners in Christ and partners with John. Jesus said it a few different ways. Let me give us a couple of them. John 16, 33. And I want you to hear this tension because it really frames John's message. I, Jesus says, I've said these things to you. It's the day before he goes to the cross. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace because in the world you're going to have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Matthew 24, 9, there's this promise that Jesus attaches to his people. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra in Acts chapter 14. They're stoned for preaching the gospel. They're dragged out of town, left for dead. And they get up, they're healed, and they return back to Lystra. And this is what we're told they're doing. 
They're strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And you hear the theme. If you're a Christian, you should experience pressure from the world to conform. And that may look like conform by valuing money over generosity. To treat your body like it's made for your pleasure rather than God's glory. To treat your rights like they're ultimate rather than something laid down in service to Jesus. And when you conform to Jesus rather than to the world, then we should expect increasingly intense pressure. Students, whether you're going off to college one day or currently in college, you are going to face pressure that you probably didn't face there the moment you step onto the college campus. Pressure to conform to the world's standards of sexuality, pressure to conform to the world's systems of truth, to adopt their narratives of what is most real in this world, to adopt their categories. And if you don't conform under that pressure, you're going to be mocked, canceled, perhaps even left without friends, and you cannot be surprised. Do you remember this theme when we studied 1 Peter? Don't be surprised, Peter says, when the fiery trials come upon you. They are a way of normalizing what we experience by verifying that we actually belong to Jesus. Now, by itself, that's horrible news. And you may not be a Christian, you could probably be thinking, at least I would if I were in your shoes, well, if that's what happens when you follow Jesus, as soon as this thing's over, I'm out of here. But you have to remember, it's not the end of this story. The victory of Jesus is ours too as a result. Jesus' church thrives, thrives when it faces persecution because His reign is always made visible in weakness. You see, we're not only partners in the tribulation that all Christians face, he's also a partner in the kingdom of God. Verse 9. In fact, do you see what happens next? Is that John is given a vision of Jesus reigning in the midst of of his church and its glorious. And these two truths are the defining truths of the Christian life that you are in this world going to face persecution, tribulation, pressure to conform, and as a result of being in Christ, you're also in the kingdom of God. That's the dual truths that Jesus conveys to his disciples in John chapter 16. You're going to experience tribulation in this world, but take heart. I've won, and I've taken you with me. And so you see what happens in John's vision is the Holy Spirit. John has a vision in the Spirit. It's pulling the curtain back. And he's saying to John, open your eyes. There's more going on than what you can see with the naked eye. In fact, what's most real is not the tribulation that you experience, but this. What's most real is what you can't see. Jesus and his victory over sin, Satan, death, and this world is a present reality as well as 
the tribulation. John says this, he says, I was on in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and that's not an insignificant detail. The Lord's Day is Sunday, the first day of the week, the week that Christians rest from our weekly labors to rest in Christ and in His victory. Children, do you remember back from when you were studying the catechism? Why is it called the Lord's Day? Answer, because on that day, the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. And so it's Sunday, the day of the resurrection of Jesus. And John has experienced a mighty and unique work of the Holy Spirit. And he hears a loud voice, like a trumpet. Again, not a minor detail. Because a trumpet is a frequent image throughout the Bible of God coming. It's an announcement that the king has arrived onto the scene to accomplish victory and defeat his enemies. And so he hears a trumpet and he turns around. He's like, what was that? And he sees Jesus with seven golden lampstands around him and angels in his hand. And he says later in verse 20, John, let me tell you what you just saw. Those seven lampstands are the seven churches that you're writing to. And those seven stars are the angels of those seven churches. It's Jesus standing in the midst of his people. And he's referred to as the Son of Man. That's straight out of the book of Daniel, chapter 7 and 10. And in those two chapters, God promises the nations of this world, there's going to be empires that rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall. But then there'll be a kingdom that lasts forever, whose victory stands. And that will be brought about by one like the Son of Man. And so he sees them there in his victory, in the kingdom. And you see what John sees in the midst of the lampstands, one like, this is verse 13, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his head, chest, and the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held the seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. You ever watch this? Try to look at the sun. It will blind you in its magnificence. He sees Jesus in the midst of his people with tremendous power as prophet, priest, and king. He's the prophet. He's seen ministering his word to his people with power. His voice is described as sounding like the voice of many waters. If you've been to Niagara Falls or down a raging river, you knew the sound. It's deafening. It overwhelms everything. It's thick with power. It literally engulfs the air around you. And the word of Jesus is like that. It penetrates, it consumes, it rushes and changes and overpowers everything that it comes in contact with. Like rushing water, everything that it touches is changed by its force. And it cannot be stopped. 
Likewise, his word is like a two-edged sword, a sword for battle, a destruction. It's held not in his hands, but coming out of his mouth with devouring and destroying force. But notice that when it comes out, it's directed first at his church, at his own people. That's because it's not intended to create a culture war, but to wage war against the sin in the hearts of his own people. The word of God exposes us. It cuts, John, Hebrews chapter 14, it cuts so deep into our hearts. Where we want to keep Jesus on the outside, we want it to be about issues or about the other people. His word comes in, he's like, no, I'm going to cut your heart right down the middle. It's going to expose the things like with precision, but it's going to expose. It's going to be like a surgeon's scalpel that's going to cut out the things in your heart that are destroying us. And as a result, it's going to make you holy. John chapter 17, 17, Jesus is one of his last words. My word will sanctify you. It'll make you like me because it comes with power both to cut so that he can heal and make things new. This was promised back in Isaiah 55. And Isaiah 55 is again using his metaphors. It's the word of God. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and don't return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Whatever barren place the word of the reigning king enters into, it has the power and the seed to produce new life, to demolish strongholds of sin and then make new life grow there. His intention, this is the king who died and is alive forevermore, who died for sin, was raised to new life. It's not simply to destroy but to destroy with the intent of healing, like rain that comes down from heaven. So he speaks as the prophet, but he's dressed as a priest. So John sees that he's dressed in a long robe with a golden sash, most likely around his chest. Children don't think of a long robe like a maybe like a beauty queen and a sash across her dress, you know, chest. This is not, this is rather an image of a priest in ancient Israel of dignity and power. They wore these sashes across their chest horizontally. It would gird up their robes so they were strapped and ready for action. And we know from the writer of Hebrews and the promise of Jesus in John's gospel that Jesus is not just up in heaven twiddling his thumbs waiting to come back. He is actively interceding. He's pleading for his people so that we could share in his victory Hebrews chapter 14, 4. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect been tempted as we are yet without sin. In other words, he knows what it's like to be you, but he also knows what it's like to gain victory, to win the battle of sin, 
And so let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we can receive grace and mercy to help in our time of need. And that's what Jesus is presently doing with all of his power. He's interceding for you. And as a result, you're guaranteed mercy and grace. And when we're persecuted in the midst of tribulation and conformed, here's what's going to happen. You're going to need both those. We're going to be mercy for the failures when we do conform and grace for the fight so that we won't conform. Both are going to be the reality. There are going to be times when we just cave. There's mercy for that because Jesus is present in heaven interceding for you and there's going to be grace so that sometimes when we don't conform, it's only because he's given us the grace to fight and win. But he's also king. He's reigning there amidst his church, victorious. A picture of lampstands casting out their light in a dark world that's trying to snuff it out. Can't snuff out the church because Jesus keeps the lampstands lit in a dark world. And this is how God sees his church you could see it, it's easy to see it as, boy, this fragile thing that we've got to keep together and make sure that we fight off anything that might encroach on it. It's not how God sees his church. It's not a fragile organization, but one that is gathered around Jesus and wins. You can see it as a group of people who are being crushed by the world, but not God. Here's the harsh reality. The visible church in the United States and in the West as a whole is shrinking. And I promise you that's going to happen for the rest of our lifetimes. And we could fall down defeated and hopeless. Or we could pull back the curtain and see, but Jesus is reigning. And you can't snuff out his church See, John doesn't see the church struggling. He sees the church, God's people, sharing in the victory of the Son of Man as a light shining in the darkness and sharing in His victory. Jesus described as a king with fiery eyes, eyes that are pure, eyes that judge, eyes that are on fire and refine and see past the facades that we create in our lives and deep into our soul. This is a king you cannot hide from his gaze, so you might as well call on him for mercy. And when you're treated unjustly by the world, see the blazing eyes of the one who will judge the living and the dead and know on that day those eyes won't consume his people but will judge their enemies and bring us into his glory. Know that those hurled insults, those accusations, those lies and slander that are thrown against his people from the outside will be judged and vindicated by the one whose eyes are on fire. And he's also a king who's wise. With head of white hair, he can be trusted to lead his people. The vision of his wisdom He's gone so far in life that he's experienced things, knows how to navigate this world. And when there are those times when it's not obvious, like now, what things are going on, we don't, what is, I mean, how many times have you scratched your head and gone, this is one of the weirdest times in my life? 
But here he is. He's the wise king who's governing all of it. On his throne, ruling all of history with wisdom. He can be trusted. Whatever he's up to. And the only way to read providence is backwards. Whatever he's up to, he's wise and good. But he's also described as a king having burnished bronze feet. Now, this takes a little bit of digging to figure out what's going on, what's being said, but bronze is a combination of iron and copper. Iron is strong, but it's susceptible to corruption. Copper, on the other hand, is steadfast and stable, but not very strong. But when you combine the two together into bronze, it combines the strength of iron and the incorruptibility of copper. And Jesus stands. His feet are firmly planted, solid and stable, and he cannot be moved, and his kingdom cannot be corrupted. And then he sees, and then he sees that Jesus holding those seven stars in his hands. And he says, those are the seven angels to the seven churches that I'm writing you to. And throughout the Bible and throughout the book of Revelation, the angels aren't, you know, little cute little fat babies with wings playing harps. They're warriors ready to do God's battle for his people. They're his infantry, his army. And so John sees the victorious king sending out his warriors so that those seven lampstands never stop casting their light in the world. God's people, his church, and always, will always enjoy a position of strength in the heavenly realm, though we will always appear meek on earth. But there's one more. The tribulation, the kingdom, and then the patient endurance. These are all ours. You catch the irony in what's happening here. It took me all week to see it. John is exiled by the political empire of Rome because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. They're like, we got to put an end to that guy. Let's go send him out on a craggy island that no one can get to, that'll stop the word of God. And then Jesus says, watch this. And his word goes out to the world. That's always what happens throughout the history of the church. Let me tell you one story. I could multiply these all day long, but you don't want me to. John Rusiano was a pastor in Uganda during the brutal reign of Idi Amin. In the 70s, Amin targeted a number of people, and it was estimated that he killed upwards of half a million people during his reign, most of whom were Christian leaders. And one day, the government came for Pastor Rusiana, and he remembers, he says, I remember a cold barrel of a gun being put against my ear, and the finger was held to the trigger, and we're running through the, the, the rows, the old potholed roads of Uganda and this old rickety truck and I'm thinking every time we hit one of those his finger's going to slip and I'm done and they put him in prison he's a partner in the tribulation right 
And Jesus' church thrives in this context because his reign is always made visible in weakness because he's also a partner in the kingdom. And so just two days after he's let out, they think, we've intimidated enough, he's going to stop. Everyone's, no one wants a part in this thing. We've intimidated all of the followers of Jesus. They're done. Two days later, he walks into church. It's packed. Standing room only, aisles filled. And he says, because, because of Jesus, it was a larger group than I could ever have imagined. A larger group than I could have ever gathered on my own. So here's my charge. Don't give up and don't give in. Because in Jesus you are partners in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance. Verse 17. Fear not. Fear not. I am the first and the last. The living one, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. Hang on. Don't give up and don't give in. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, We need a vision like this to penetrate our hearts. For it's easy to see what's right in front of us and lose heart. And so may we see what is most true of you. Teach us to fear you. That we might not fear the pressure of the world or being cast out or any other fear that creeps into our lives. May we fear you as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And now as we come to your table, give us a vision for you and you crucified for our sins. That we could rest and be fed this kingdom meal. For we are one with you in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and in the patient endurance. So we pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen.